Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Good. I like that greeting. Have we settled into that's our greeting? I think it is. Yeah. Is it? Is it just? It arrived. It arrived organically. Until until we decide to mess things up. Until such a time that you go. I'm bored of this now. Well, mess with the status. So next week we'll change it because it will be a status quo change. Yeah. And then two weeks from now we'll change it again. Yeah. Because it's another status quo change. Yeah. And then three weeks after that we'll change it again. Because it's another status quo change. Look, Dr. Octopus beats that status quo change. I don't believe you. <laughs> you don't have to. He's already back from what we just saw. Oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, no, 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 no. We've just looked oh. at December solicitations for Marvel, lovely listener. No, those comics with Peter Parker are not currently. Are they? There's a movie coming out soon. So yeah, the flashbacks. Okay. Old matter. Pay it no mind. That's okay. C3PO once. So. Um, yeah, I don't have anything this week. I've done nothing exciting, comic related, other than read something awesome, but that's for next week's show, mm-hmm. so I can't talk about it now. And you've done stuff that's not comic related, but is related to today's show. Yeah. So we can't talk about that just yet. Just yet. It will play in later. Do you know we've really got good at, at teasing our audience? Oh, we have, oh. yeah. Unless they just don't cook. These little nuggets. Because they're like, guys, you're not teasing us. Yeah, get on with it! We can fast forward. (laughs) Get on with the show! We just read the description you put in after you record the show. Yeah, the funny thing about those descriptions, they've gotten increasingly more generic as we've gone along because I do not remember what we did in that show. It's getting better that that way. (laughs) You've got to remember, lovely listeners, we have four or five shows on the boil at once in the process of writing, editing... Um, notes, planning what we're going to do in the future, plus actually uploading. Yeah. So as today went up, we'll give them a taster. Right. Today, Cosmic Spider-Man what, 2 went up, so right. I had to write the blurb for that. I had no memory of what happened in that show, because okay. it was over two weeks ago. I have no memory. Uh, I was writing the script for next week's show today. Right. Uh, I have also been tidying up the script for today's show yesterday. Right. You've been working on today's show yesterday. I have also been writing notes in the book for potential future shows, whilst also planning what we're going to do, not next week, the week after, but that is largely on you, not me. So I've been started planning on that, So whilst yeah. reading what, what I was doing for today. So that is working on one, two, three, four shows at once, whilst thinking about others beyond that. Yeah. So... You can see why I'd get confused. You do know, don't you? I got, I can't say until the end of the show because I'm teasing what we're doing next week, but I got what we're doing next week is in there yeah. and I picked that up thinking that's what we were doing tonight. That's how confused I get. You do, because you, you leave the stuff on the table where we do the recording and the note making. 
So you leave the comics on there, even though we're not doing that for another three weeks. Yeah. And when we come to recording, you'll pick it up and go, oh, we're not doing this. Yeah. Unless, well, today we've only got what we're covering on the table, because it it's a mighty fine example of comic you're book You're in your comics Yes, well, this is... It's an absolute by any other name, no, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So. You do realise, I think, we actually told them last week what we're doing this week. I think we do. So, this teasing is crap. Hey, given the, given the name... <laughs> Given the name of what it is you're stroking, does that mean you're stroking a guy? No, I am stroking a book. It's a book. <laughs> is it? It's quite clearly a book. I, I, it is a big book. It's a well-packaged book. Yes. It is wide of girth it was and made, healthy in size. It was designed by a sculptor who thought big. Indeed, yes. <laughs> anyway. Have a little tease, though. Yeah, but uh, we blew it last week. We told them what we're doing. Yeah, we're so doing. we're crap. Aren't we? We're just patting ourselves on the back, and I'm good at this. We were because we forgot what we did last week. <laughs> you know the sad thing, though. I re-listened to them to make sure everything's okay and the music's in the right place, and I've bleeped out any nasty words or anything. Yeah. So I li- I re-listened to them. I still don't remember what we talk about. <laughs> I can believe that. <laughs> Do you know the website went unupdated for five weeks because I just forgot all about it? Well, do you think anyone listen, goes to the website? Does anyone go to the website? I don't know anymore. Everyone just goes to Two Tree Freaks. Everyone just goes to Two Tree Freaks because all the shows are there now. Yeah. So that does make more sense. The only reason to go to the website is I put the comics so covers see, up see there. The pictures, yeah. But I have thought about Superior Spider Cast, Superior Spider Talk, yeah. does that thing where they put the pictures on your iPod. Make changes cover. Yeah. So when they're talking about a clip, a panel in the book, there's a noise. Yeah. And then it comes up on your iPod. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. And I'm, I keep meaning to investigate how you do that. Mm. But A, I'm lazy. And B, I've just not had time. Or is it not just adding cover art? I don't know. your iTunes. Because mu- you must have to be able to tie it into the episode. Yeah, so in you'd somewhere. have to do that and then go back and edit so it. So you must have to do chapter breaks and such. Yeah. And I don't know how complicated it would be and how much extra work it would be having to scan it all in. Because, hmm. let's be honest, this is time-consuming as it is. Yeah. But I just thought that was a lovely little touch, that you wouldn't have to sit there describing the panels anymore. you just say, have a look at the iPod. I mean, if you don't listen to an iPod, you're screwed. Have a look on the computer. Yeah, I mean, we've also thought about doing it video. Yeah. Yeah, and having us sat in front of our huge wall of books... Would you have like a gimmick where we wear a mask? Uh, no, I'd wear my fedora. Daft Punk it. And you could wear your cowboy hat. Yeah, we, we could be like Daft Punk. Everyone wearing a different mask. Yeah. We were Iron Man. That's not quite like. I'll do it one week as, uh, as the shadow and just have a scarf over your face. <laughs> I like that. Oh, so yeah. But again, again I, d- I didn't know how much extra work that would be, and you'd have to edit two separate things. You'd have yeah. to edit the video and the. And it, it sounded too complicated. Did you know you record it as one? I don't know, because, and let's be honest, I don't like being on TV. I guess. I'm not, and you know. Would, would the, the, the sound be faster than the audio? I mean, have no, PAL, MTC, no, how's no, it going to cross over to... Across the streams. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so forget all that. Emails. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Yes. Our lovely email section of the show. Everybody's favourite part of the show, except for those that don't like it. Which seems to be more people than most you do. We're working on it. We're, we're coming up with ideas all the time, but I like getting emails. So, uh, I hope This one's called Many Weeks in One. It's Damien Lee. Hello, Damien. Hey, Mr. Leyland. Hey, Dr. Nick. That was his joke, not mine. Yes, yes. Very hey, funny. Hey, Cram, though. Hey, Earl. 
Before I get started, a few weeks back you briefly discussed Marvel Ultimate Alliance 2 and thought it may be a little online-only game. Not at all. It's a big four-player co-op action game. Good. I've never played it. Have you played it? No. I've played the X-Men game, which is the same, but X-Men characters. Okay. It's actually, sadly, not cheap at all, continues Damien. It's one of those rare games that has mostly held up its price, outside of Nintendo games. The first one is cheaper and, in my opinion, better. Both have fun four players on a single-screen co-op superhero game, a little simplistic, and flying characters are handicapped, but great fun. Think of them as Skylanders for superhero fans. Then buy it for Anya instead of the next Skylanders game. She doesn't play Skylanders, does she? No. She likes Sims. Well, I'm dressing like, a girls up in funny clothes and things. I had a slight amount of interest in it because it was Spyro the Dragon. You had a slight amount, of it. but but then I saw what they've done to Spyro the Dragon. What have they done to Spyro the Dragon? They, 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 I don't know. They've created loads of different dragons and, yeah. and made Skylanders. Okay, fair. I, I, I like my Spyro pointing his head at the ground and running really, really fast and chasing the blue hood things. Fair enough. Um, I have to admit to being a lonely fan of the flawed but fun X-Men 3, continues Damien, so I was pleasantly surprised that Wolverine's new movie acts largely as a belated sequel. I was very disappointed in Wolverine Origins and found First Class annoying. Was it a reboot or not? Oh, come on, First Class was great! Yeah, but was it a reboot or not? Yeah, it's kind of a little, possibly tiny, maybe a little bit. Possibly. A, pre- a pre-boot. Yes, I'm going with that. <laughs> I like that. I don't know what a pre-boot is. A prequel reboot. But I'm having it. The post- That's kind of like Evil Dead too. Oh, yeah. Only that's just Have you seen the new Evil Dead? I've not. Not very good. At all. Best bit is the end. The that's very it. end. The post-credits bit where Sam Jackson would show up if it were a Marvel movie. That's right. the best bit of the film. Is that the bit where he, he wakes up at the morning and realises he's alive so he walks out of the cabin but, oh no, the entity flies at him again. No. No, that does not happen. Oh, actually, oh, seriously, I was very disappointed in it. It's one of those, it's just drained out all the fun well, yeah. of the Evil Dead movies and just made a straight-up horror film. It's no different to... I was going to say Cabin in the Woods, but Cabin in the Woods was good. <laughs> um, it's no different to, to the Friday the 13th remakes and all that, so I was very disappointed in it. Yeah. Really disappointed. Cause, good thing I didn't see that. Yeah, I was very much looking forward to watching it. Mm. We've got it. Yeah. Wanna watch it? Well, no, I don't think I will. You're not interested now. <laughs> no, very disappointed. Anyway, Damien's email, which I interrupted to, to do an impromptu review of Evil Dead. The post-credit sequence in Wolverine piqued my interest for Singer's new film, though. It would be nice if you could return to form and somehow, somehow make the existing films work as some kind of coherent continuity and narrative, which my inner geek just needs, frankly. Oddly, there's a surprising amount of miniseries in the film, even if it isn't particularly well used. There's, 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 see, I disagree with that. I, I think there's a surprising amount of the characters from the miniseries in the film without actually doing the miniseries story. Mm. But maybe you've got a big plan worked out. We're going to introduce the characters and then, and then do Wolverine four or three or whatever the hell they're up to now. Yeah, Wolverine, because that the, the cover could just be snicked, couldn't it? Yeah, Wolverine three. Then Wolverine four, he's sticking his middle finger up. Yeah. Like he did in the first one. To yeah. Cyclops, that would be really. Anyway, continues Damien. The Clermont Miller Mini. It was my first ever trade paperback. Bought for me by me mam. <laughs> I like that he put mam. In one of the many local comic shops I cursed by shopping though. 
All of which, unless they are part of a chain, closed down soon after I set up Standing Orders. It was my first exposure to Miller, and as I read it during my early X-Men phase, Extinction Agenda, the Jim Lee Wilts Potassio Leafield era, stood out as something utterly magnificent to that tail end of the 80s, early 90s look of the X-Books. Having gone back over the majority of Clermont's era in the years since, it's interesting how well Clermont integrated this many, and others of the time, Nightcrawler, Magic, etc., into his ongoing X-Men narrative. I've now ended up with about four editions, my beloved original £5.50 trade paperback with a new Miller cover, the Marvel Graphic Novels line edition, and it's included in the Best of Wolverine hardcover. So I've read it several times, and the things that stick most in my memory are the cover images and fantastically dynamic battle sequences. The original trade paperback includes an intro from Clermont that suggests he and Miller effectively co-plotted the story on a drive home from a convention, which would explain why it plays to Miller's strength so much. And like you, I read somewhere that the final issue, Miller just provided thumbnails or layouts with Ruben start doing the rest of the work. Oh, right. No, I did not know that. I just guessed, didn't I? Yeah. I said, this looks more like Rubenstein than it does Miller. So that kind of confirms my guesstimate. So thanks for that, Damien. I did not know that for certain. It was just a guess. One thing you mentioned stood out, Logan's healing factor. He suffers during the battles. He takes time to heal. Like you, me, presumably. <laughs> I love back, though, when there was some sort of limits. Right through the Cloma era, his character had powers that they had to use sensibly. Nightcrawler had issues teleporting for years. He got tired, it hurt him. He had to know the space he was porting. Oh, I remember that! Mm. He had to know where he was teleporting to. Yeah. So I he remember. couldn't just teleport anywhere. Because he could teleport into a wall. Yeah. I remember that, yeah. Kitty was another, and this answers a question you pose redates a future past. She could only phase as long as she could hold her breath. Of course, like everything else, Clermont overdid it a bit. How many times over the years did Aurora whinge about the anguish of her claustrophobia every bloody time she stepped into a building? It's really only obvious reading them en masse. It wouldn't have been so bad if I'd been getting them monthly, I guess. The natural escalation of ongoing character fiction. Anyway, I've left it too late to talk about Daredevil Yellow, except to say I loved it. Even if rereading it straight after Blue, the letters to a dead loved one feels a bit, oh, they had a good idea, so they're going to use it again. I haven't read DD since Bendis left. I love most of that run, but did just start reading Wager, and I'm loving it. I especially love issues that end on a cliffhanger instead of just stopping. Thanks for another great show. If you didn't do Transformers as a child, as you said in your email show, then I doubt it would have had any resonance as an adult. Transformers were my gateway drug into comics and the early issues printed Ditko's Machine Man, and I bought them for that, not the big reboots themselves. Then I moved over to Secret Wars with the so good I could eat it in a constant loop burn alpha flight and into the Marvel Universe proper. Nonetheless, Furman's UK title still stands in an amazingly good all-ages licensed comic, even if the Dreamwave IDW continuities are more mature and seem to be more highly regarded. Some phenomenal art though too, Jeff Senior, Will Simpson, Jeff Anderson, Andrew Wildman, none of whom are really in mainstream comics anymore, sadly. Once again, thanks again for the great show. It's like I get to listen to a couple of friends talk about something I love, which as a comics fan doesn't happen anymore. Keep it up, Damien. Thank you, Damien. That's very nice, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We appreciate that compliment. P.S. Did you ever watch Young Justice? It may well be the single best thing DC Warners has done since Crisis. Stunning animation, brilliant story arcs, great use of the wider DCU, and cancelled because they didn't sell enough toys. <laughs> I think that was the same reason the Green Lantern animated show was cancelled. Really? Because they didn't sell enough toys. I, I believe that is what Paul Dinius said, yeah. Kind of sucks when they cancel a show because of the toys. Kind of sucks, yeah. Kind of sucks. You know, to answer the question, we didn't get it, but we only watched the first episode. Did we? Yeah. I don't even remember watching Young Justice. I don't, but I know we watched it together. Right, okay. Because we said, well, that was alright. I never watched it again. No. Um, 
Uh, we've got one email later on. I don't remember who it is, and we may not cover it today, so we won't talk about it in depth. But it covers the cartoons that are currently on, like Beware the Batman, yeah, Agents of Smash, the new Avengers series, yeah. I've, I don't have an opinion on any of them because I've, I've I watched the first Avengers and didn't think much of it. Well, the the Young Avengers one as well. I kind of went off because it created its own little fangirl finger. You know, like Supernatural has now when they put yeah. Keen and Castiel together. Yeah, it spawned Shipping. its own circle of that. Is it? So I. Would, yeah, okay. Beware the Batman's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I like Beware the Batman. Anyway, catching up with the Leylands, it's Michael Bailey. In a week. Well, there's no email from Rob. No. And no email from Luke. Yeah. It's nice to have Michael here. It is. To fill in that gap. <laughs> to plug that gap in. That's what we like. Hey there, mates. Hey, Michael. I feel like I can move away from the pleasantries and clever greetings and just say hi to a couple of old friends. Well, pull up a chair, Mike. Mm-hmm. We don't mind having you here. I mean, pleasantries are, well... Pleasant. pleasant. <laughs> You may dispense with the pleasantries, Commander. The Emperor's here to see you back on schedule. I know, I know, it's been a while. Sure, we sat down not too long ago and recorded an epic episode of Views from the Long Box, not just with Andy and not just with Michael, but both of them. Thanks to Adam. Quick preview for the folks at home, TC and the chicken in colour. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's made you reach your collateral, TC and the chicken. Rolling down to Dallas, my wheels provide my palace. But instead of a pet monkey, I've got a chicken. Yeah! And it's a little bit more than a pet. <laughs> it's a constant companion. <laughs> but Mike continues, but it has been some time since I sat down and wrote you a proper email for this. I apologise. Sometimes I wish I had Luke Giaconetti's conviction and consistency in emailing. Anyway, instead of writing a super long email that feels like four of my normal emails crammed into one, I thought it would be fun to give you a few thoughts on some of the subjects you have covered lately in no particular order. Daredevil Yellow. I managed to snag this series a few months ago, as it has a very special place in my heart. Why? Well, it's not because I have a love of Daredevil. I like the character, I think he's rather cool, and I've enjoyed just about all the stories I've read, but this series was one of the books I read while my wife was in the hospital, so Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale provided me some much-needed escapism, and as I'm a very emotional reader, I will always like this story since it was there for me when I needed it. Beyond that, it was a really solid story that felt a little uneven, but never let me down. I like these characters and I like the vibe Loeb and Sale were going for. And I like that costume. I've got no idea why, but I do. To each their own. Mm-hmm. la vie, so the old folks. Goes Just to show you never can tell. tell. X-Men Days of Future Past. The first time I read this story, my first reaction was, wow, that was much shorter than I thought it would be. Oddly enough, my wife had a similar reaction when I picked her up for our first date, which is why she wore the boots that added a few inches to her height. But that's a story for another time. I mean, it's not like she looked at me and said, aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? But it was pretty damn close. Anyway, my love for John Byrne goes back to my earliest days of collecting, and this story was Byrne when he was at the height of his game. It might be cliche to say that the Clermont Burn run and the X-Men mix were some of the best superhero comics ever produced, but that doesn't make it any less true. This story may not have been designed to be a solid way for their run to end, but the fates allowed for that to happen. The story probably doesn't have the punch it did for readers 20 or 30 years ago, but that's because a lot of the things Clermont and Byrne did here have been echoed and copied and flat-out ripped off by the creators that have followed. So once again, the original looks a bit clichéd, even though it established the clichés. This may not be my favourite of the Clermont Byrne run. For me, you can't beat the Dark Phoenix saga, but it's still fantastic. Well, Dark Phoenix is great. My only issue with Dark Phoenix is it does not work if you just give it to somebody and say, look, this is brilliant. That's why I think I've said before, whoever was doing X-Men 3 
yeah. was on a hide into nothing, weren't they? There is no way in hell you could have done the Dark Phoenix saga as a hundred minute film. Yeah. You just couldn't. Not only was it, God, seven or eight issues long, it was seven or eight Clermont issues long. Yeah. So that's what? The 18 Bendis issues. <laughs> um, oh, no, no, no. It's like a 50-issue a run. It's a 50-issue run easy. Yeah, yeah. It was... Um, one of them was double-sized. Yeah. It was also the culmination of, what, a good year to 18 months worth of setup. Yeah. So there was it's Clermont. Well, that as well. But So there was no way in hell you could do that as a good movie. I, my only thing with Days of Future Past being better is I think it would be easier to give to somebody who's never read the X-Men and say, look, this is dead good. Well, that and it's shot as well. That and it's shot. Which is not to say I don't think Days of Phoenix, Dark Phoenix, Days of Phoenix Saga. <laughs> Days of um, the Dark Phoenix Saga. Get it right, <laughs> Mickey. Um... It's good. I, I think it's brilliant. But I think Days of Future Past has the edge over it because of its brevity and its new reader-friendliness. Yeah. And I still hold out a hope they're going to do a literal adaptation. I don't think so, though. And in the see, I see what you did there department phrase I'm starting to hate, by the way, says Michael. I like I see what you did there. What's your problem with it, Michael? We want to know. Kudos to Andy and Michael for covering the story in the year the future part of the tale would have took place, rather than waiting for next year. You zigged where the podcasting world would have zagged. Bravo. Thank you very much. I'm glad you noticed that. Now when you, you actually plan that? It was almost semi-kinder. <laughs> it was dumb luck. It wasn't, but then when you realised it was, you rolled with it. No. I was flicking through the trade in yeah. Waterstones to see what else was in the book because obviously it's only two issues Yeah. so I was just flicking through to see what they padded that out with and essentially what they've done is they've picked up at the end of Dark Phoenix Saga and ran right through to Clermont Burn leaving so they've included the alien issue with Kitty Pride afterwards yeah. even though the trade's called tried, the trade's called Days of Future Past that's only two issues in seven or eight issue trade and I was flicking through it and I just noticed 2013 mm. and I went it's 2013 now. We've got Days of Future <laughs> Past in the book as something to cover. Let's do it. And that's basically where it came from. Yeah. Because if you remember, that got bumped up the list because of that. So it was a bit of luck, a bit of judgment, a bit of serendipity, mm. I suppose you would say. Uh, Nightwing Year One, Mike continues, the story holds a very special place in my heart because of when it was produced. See, when this story went down, I was in a weird place with the Batman titles. On the one hand, I didn't care for war games, the story where Stephanie Brown was tortured with power tools and killed because a beloved Batman character wanted to teach Bruce a lesson, but surprise, she didn't die, and boy, were there a lot of pissed-off Robin fans between those two events. On the other hand, Judd Winnick's run on Batman was really rather good, and I remember it fondly. Stephanie Brown was tortured with power tools. Was Dan Didio in charge at that point? Yeah. Ah, um, no, no, it was just a, that was a pithy joke. Don't email him. He couldn't read the charge at the time because, well, she's back now. Stephanie Brown's not back, is she? Yeah. Is she? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. She's, she's back as Batgirl. Alright, fair enough. Uh, Nightwing was another matter entirely. I don't remember when I started reading the title, which is odd for me, but it was probably around Cataclysm. And in one of the best cases of fan short-sightedness, I skipped out on the major parts of No Man's Land when it came out, but stuck with Nightwing and Robin because of Chuck Dixon. Dixon is one of my all-time favourite writers, so it makes sense that his time with Dick Grayson and Tim Drake are some of my favourite stories. When Devin Grayson took over the book, I was initially excited, because like Andy, I rather liked her Gotham Knights. I ended up not curing for a run on Titans, but initially dug her writing on Nightwing. Initially. 
The run ended up being rather tedious, and as it dragged on, my opinion of Grayson as a writer kept on dropping. The final straw for me was when, after killing a major villain, Grayson had the new tarantula have sex with Nightwing on a rooftop. Okay. That in and of itself wouldn't normally bug me, because like Andy, I think young Master Grayson is a bit of a player. The thing, did you like what I did there? Did you like me doing my mixing on my vinyl records? Because <laughs> I am at one with the kids. Oh, yeah. Totes. <laughs> Totes emotes. Totes lead. <laughs> um, so sorry, I interrupted Mike's email. The thing is, Nightwing wasn't really able to consent to the act, which a lot of people, including me, would call rape. Especially if the tables were turned and Nightwing took advantage of a weakened tarantula. It may seem like I'm making light of the situation, but it really bothered me at the time, on the same level as Dr. Light's actions in the second issue of Identity Crisis. So at this point, I wanted her off the book, and then there was War Games, and then Chuck Dixon. Anyway. I I just remembered that uh, Stephanie Brown is not back. She was back, but then the New 52 happened. Right, so she was back before the New 52, but she's not back in the New 52. Yes. Because they would have to explain another Robin. Yes. In the five-year timeline. Wait, I think she might be, but I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> oh, God, make your mind up, dude. She's around somewhere. I've not got a clue if Stephanie Brown's back. If Ted Cord is in there, then she has to be. I presume so. So, for six issues, Michael concludes, I was about to forget all about the ickiness of what Grayson had done to the book and get to see my favourite Nightwing writer tell a new version of his second origin. Were there inconsistencies? Yes. Were there annoying instances of having newer versions of something crop up in a flashback story? Yes. But it was damn good and it made my day. Or days, as I read them as I came out. Now I want to dig out all the year ones Dixon wrote and read them again. I wish I had the time. Maybe I should make it. Uh, Yeah, I bought the new trade. The new Batgirl Robin Year One trade paperback because I had the Robin Year One. Yeah. But the Batgirl one was going for stupid money on Facebook, not Facebook, eBay. So I bought them both because it was only less than a tenner on Amazon and gave my Robin Year One to the kids' library around the corner. Fair enough. Hopefully to engage the imagination of a number of children. (laughs) That'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. I like to think that's what's going to happen to it. In our town, probably not. Probably not, no. Anyway, that's it for now, says Michael. Keep up the great work, and I will be talking to you soon. Your mate from across the pond, Mikey Mike B. Well, it was nice to hear from you, Michael. Always nice to hear from Michael. Uh, last one tonight, because we're running out of time. Charlie Niemeyer emails with Civil War. Ha! Got you again. Damn you, Niemeyer! Damn you, all the hell! Did you like that? You like the child nest? Just a quick note to let you know that we did in fact get Danger Mouse and Count Duckula, and both were favourites of mine as a kid. However, it wasn't until recently I discovered that Count Duckula was from the UK. How can you not know that David Jason did the voice, dude? David Jason is the voice of Danger Mouse! How can you not recognise them? It's David Jason! Del Boy Trotter! I don't know. Gran, 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 Granville! He was Granville, wasn't he? Gran, Granville! <laughs> Grant Granville, come here. Ooh, no, Gladys Emmanuel. Ooh. I just realised 90% of our audience have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, Open All Hours was a sitcom starring Ronnie Barker. Not Ronnie Carter. Is that the shop one? Yes. Yeah. It's actually very, very funny sitcom from the 70s. Artwright was a very stingy shopkeeper. Who, and David Jason was Granville, his, his shop boy. And he had a stutter. Now, normally you don't get humour out of stutters, but Ronnie Barker was very funny when he went, Gra, 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 Granville! And it was, it was funny. It was a funny show, and I like it a lot. Anyway, I guess it wasn't as obvious as Danger Mouse. It's totally obvious, Charlie! It's David Jason! I think the question there, though, is, did they get Alias the Jester by the same people? 
Alias the Jester was a time traveller of old. You know, you'd... No? No. Oh, okay. Anyway, until the Doctor regenerates into a black female midget on steroids. <laughs> oh, dear me. And Charlie followed that up with a PS that said, PS, not that there's anything wrong with the Doctor being a black female midget on steroids. I'm sure Moffat could get a story out of that. <laughs> Very briefly, Brian Bojorquez which is a lovely name, he emailed me saying there was, a, there was a problem with the RSS feed. And I just want to, I did put on Facebook, but I'll put it on the show as well for people that listen to the show that aren't on Facebook. Uh, you can subscribe just to this show. And the same with all the Two True Freaks family of podcasts. If you go to twotruefreaks.com and then go to list of shows and then go to the show that you want, i.e. Hey Kids Comics, there is two links. One to subscribe to every show on the feed, which is the Two True Freaks 2 feed, and one to just subscribe to the show you want to subscribe to. But let us know if you're having any trouble with the feed and I will let Mike know who is our guru in such matters but thank you Brian for letting me know we're going to knock it on the head for emails though because we've gone on far too long but we've still got plenty left but keep sending them we do like them despite last week's conversation <laughs> which some people may interpret as well they don't like emails that's not true all our emailers are shying away no we do like getting them but I was a bit concerned it was it was a bit waffly so anyway I'm sure you'll let me know oh, you lovely listener listeners have we gone back down to one now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they came in, they listened to the Cosmic Spider-Man one, not for us, and left. <laughs> don't like, don't, you don't want our emails being read, you know, I won't listen to them. That, nope. <laughs> that is not what happened. We're not taking this case. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Break. Yeah. Drink. Yes. Biscuits, presumably. Yes. We'll be right back. Oh, you pre me, dude. <laughs> Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like ready to form Voltron? Or maybe How about I am Batman? Or This is a job for Superman. Do you remember Power Rangers? Or this? Right away, Michael. Or maybe even this? Autobots Transform! <laughs> or this? By the power of Grayskull! Or For the or have you seen the latest episode of... Hello. I'm the Doctor. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's Geekcast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. Charlie's Geekcast is a bi-weekly podcast covering comics and other geek stuff. The first episode of each month is devoted to comics, where, currently, I'm covering Grant Morrison's run on JLA, one storyline at a time. The other episode of the month is devoted to whatever else I want to talk about, such as movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, and more. Feel free to check it out at www.charliesgeekcast.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, hopefully. And we're back! In black. Lovely listener, Richard Stark's Parker is a character with few redeeming qualities. 
For a character as complex as Parker, it seems apt that the author, Richard Stark, is a pseudonym for writer Donald Westlake. And Parker, no first name given, is not a thief with a heart of gold, nor is he a smart con man with an elaborate job underscored by whimsical music, nor is he surrounded by a team of lovable scoundrels played by George Clooney or Brad Pitt. No, Parker is a ruthless thug. He has a code, but it's a code to which he alone subscribes, and he rarely has intricately planned jobs with lots of stylistic flair. He's a man who picks his gigs carefully and executes them with ruthless efficiency. Appearing in 24 novels in between 1962 and 2008, Stark Westlake took Parker through numerous stories and novels, along the way influencing films and television irrevocably. Quentin Tarantino received plaudits for originality when he released Pulp Fiction in 1992 for its non-linear storytelling, but Parker did it in the 1962 novel The Hunter. There have been numerous one-named pulp characters over the years, but even Parker may not be the character's real name. The character also had a tight continuity, and he even had cameo appearances in other novels. He's also one of Darwin Cook's favourite characters. He had three cameos. Three cameos. What in? Uh, he was in Jimmy the Kid. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the other one. And then he was in the other one, which is the other The first chapter of Slay Ride. Yeah. Is another book as well, isn't it? Mm. Darwin Cook has worked on DC's New Frontier, which we gave glowing reviews, yes. didn't we, on a previous episode. But he's also a fan of crime noir, and this is readily apparent in his other comics work. The most notable of these were a Catwoman graphic novel called Selina's Big Score, a crime noir heist thriller featuring, not coincidentally I presume, a character named Stark, who bears more than a passing resemblance to Parker, and the excellent Slam Bradley backup strips he did for Detective Comics that led into Catwoman's own new series by Ed Brubaker. The Slam Bradley backup is as close as a mainstream comic has ever got to serious detective noir, with rumpled, dishevelled detective Slam Bradley being hired to find Selina Kyle after she is believed to be dead. Written by Brubaker with excellent art by Cook, this is all neon streets, rain-drenched alleyways and beatings in the backs of cars and is highly recommended. It is available in the Trail of the Catwoman trade paperback. The Parker adaptation, however, started with a view to adapting four of the original novels, starting with The Hunter, and came about rather easily. IDW editors Scott Dunibar and Ted Adams arranged all the rights issues when Cook pitched the idea to them, and Cook contacted Westlake for his blessing. Thus granted, Cook started working on breaking the novel down into the comic book format and working on character designs for Westlake to OK. Westlake claimed he never really thought of what his characters looked like, and this was especially true of Parker, a character who was designed to be very internal and inexpressive. Over a few months, Cook worked with Westlake, slowly convincing the man that this was a good idea, but sadly Westlake would pass away before the work was completed. Originally released as a lovely little paperback graphic novel in July 2009, we're reading this in the simply gorgeous Parker, the Martini edition, which is an absolute by any other name. You're going to have to strap yourself in, lovely listeners, because this synopsis is a big one. Parker, the Hunter. 1962. Parker wasn't a syndicate boy, and never had been. He worked a job every year or so, payroll or armoured car or banks, never taking anything but unmarked and untraceable cash. He never worked with more than a four or five man team and never on a job unless he was sure of the competence of his associates. Nor did he always work with the same people. 
He kept his money in hotel safes and lived his life in resort hotels, Miami, Las Vegas, Palm Springs, taking on another job only when his cash on hand dropped below $5,000. He'd never been tagged for any of his jobs, nor was there a police file on him anywhere in the world. Once or twice a year, an intermediary would contact Parker about a possible job. Thieves would be invited in on a job and a neutral city would be chosen for a meet. Sometimes the job would be good and sometimes it would be bad. Parker had taken his wife Lynn with him to Chicago for one of these meetings. The job was bad. Parker walked, even though his cash reserves were low. And this is where Mal came along. The job Mal was proposing was sweet, with a $90,000 payoff. Mal Resnick was a scumbag and a coward with a big mouth who owed the syndicate a lot of money, but he brought with him Chester, a Canadian Parker knew who had a line on a job. American munitions were being trucked into Canada. A posse of South American rebels were the clients. It was ripe for hijacking. The rebels would never report it, and what did they have to fear from mountain rebels a continent away? Having no trust in a big mouth like Mal, Parker started taking control of the job, bringing in Ryan and Sill, with Lynn arranging a staging post and Parker a plane. When the meet between the gunrunners and the South Americans took place, Parker and his crew were waiting, making away with the 90 grand. They spent the night in a deserted home after splitting the money. 30 for Chester, who arranged the gig, 22,500 for Mal and Parker, and 7.5 for Ryan and Gil. In the middle of the night, Parker made his move to eliminate Mal, whose big mouth he felt was a liability, but was shot and left for dead by Lynn. Parker awakened to the house ablaze, and Chester, Sill, and Ryan all dead. Stumbling away, Parker was picked up by the state police and, whilst in jail, made some roundabout inquiries as to Mal's whereabouts. He located him in New York, and Parker escaped from a chain gang, killing a guard to do so. Laying low, not wanting Mal to know he still lived, Parker made his way back to New York, where he'd located Mal and Lynn, who were living high on the hog, after Mal had taken Parker's money and paid what he owed back to the syndicate. Once there, Parker relies on all the tricks of the trade to fabricate himself a driver's license with a reasonably common name, Edward Johnson, and then hits all the banks in town for a bank account that matches the name. Armed with a new checkbook, Parker buys a nice suit, cufflinks and a watch, rents a room and bides his time. He locates Lynn and finds out Mal is gone, but Mal supports her. Armed with a new checkbook, Parker buys a nice suit, cufflinks and watch, rents a room and bides his time. He buys some more watches that he pawns for cash and later locates Lynn and finds out that Mal is gone, but Mal still supports her. Parker can wait. That night, Lynn kills herself via an overdose and Parker, still holding the element of surprise, dumps her body and carves up her face so a positive ID is impossible. He then waits in Lynn's apartment. When the money arrives, Parker interrogates the delivery man and he gives up a name, Arthur Stegman. Stegman turns out to be a dead end initially, so Parker tries other avenues. He locates a girl named Rose after hitting the local bars and she knows Mal Resnick by reputation. He likes to play it rough with the girls. She turns over his address. After a few dead ends, Parker locates Mal. Parker wants to kill Mal but needs money more. Moreover, Parker wants his life back, the one Resnick had taken away. And he wants his money. Mal says the money's all gone. Turns out he owed the syndicate big, which is why he betrayed them all in the first place. Parker gets a name from Mal, Carter, and Parker strangles Mal. A few days later, Parker heads over to Carter Investments and tells Carter what he wants. His share of the money. He says Mal is dead and coerces Carter into calling someone higher up the syndicate's chain of command. Parker says he'll kill Carter and then come after the person on the other end of the phone if he doesn't get his money. The man on the phone refuses, so Parker kills Carter. 
Parker learns the man on the end of the phone is Fairfax, and a few days later is at his house. He tells Fairfax that he knows a lot of men, men who currently don't interfere with syndicate business, but, if Parker gave the word, could start making life awkward for their many and varied business interests. Fairfax calls Bronson, who's even higher up the syndicate chain of command, who agrees to pay Parker his money, but from now on, Parker must beware, he'll be a marked man. Bronson won't send anyone after Parker specifically, but he'll just spread the word. If you come across Parker, make him dead. Parker, says Bronson, will need a lot of people, all of whom are better than who he's encountered so far. The drop initially goes badly, with Parker taking on a few assassins and warning Bronson that if he tries this double-cross crap again, Bronson will be next. The next man has the money, but Parker realises it's too easy and a hit squad are waiting for him. Playing it cool, Parker manages to take them out also. He takes the car, mops up the final loose end, Arthur Stegman, and it's done. He'd look at that plastic surgeon he knew. A new face and back in the old routine. Miami was nice this time of year. But maybe the keys. Miami. That was actually a very complicated synopsis that I simplified immensely. Yes. <laughs> in fact, you could even say I made it simplistic. <laughs> couldn't you? Um, I've restructured it considerably. But we'll get into that as we go along. Uh, in the absolute edition, the oversized artwork is gorgeous. I say this now simply to avoid the redundancy of saying it constantly throughout the show. Just accept that I'm saying it on every single page. It's hard to describe exactly how the boot looks. It's not in colour, per se, but it's not monochrome either. The Absolute has four stories. The first two graphic albums Cook released, The Hunter and The Outfit, A Bridging Tale, The Man with the Getaway Face, and The Seventh, and all of them look like a wash kind of effect with one different colour applied to the art this story is kind of turquoise all the way through and broken into four chapters mm-hmm. the original novel was actually called the Point Blank was it? yeah did um, they rename it the Hunter after the film Point Blank with I Lee Marvin? I don't know but one of the re-releases it was called the Hunter I mean it's the same with other things as well um, the, the seventh was originally called the Split was it? yeah and it's just Things he just rechanged. Well, the seventh is just one chapter of that novel, isn't it? It's the last chapter in there. Right, so he's not, he's probably not going to adapt that boot then. No. One would have thought. Well, he did say at the back it wasn't the best, it was just a good chapter. Right, okay, that's fair enough. Um, And the first spread, which becomes a recurring image in all the other books, Mm -hmm. um, is, is, I think it's a great splash and really sets the tone of the books. It's a photo of New York that's being manipulated, but it looks gritty and real. Whilst also showing the, the bright, vibrant city New York is shown to be. Yeah, it's just, it's two-page splash just of New York, and all it says is New York City, 1962. Mm. And it looks very Darwin Cook as well at the same time. Yeah, it is it a photo that he's fiddled with? Yeah. Right. Okay, fair enough, because I was going to ask you that. Because it's not as obvious as when you see photo backgrounds fiddled with when Todd McFarlane and John Byrne would do it in the 80s. Mm. It's not as obvious that it's a photo manip but uh, it does look pretty damn good I, I mentioned in the opening preamble that this story is non-linear in that we're filled in in the backstory of how Parker got here obviously for the synopsis I rearranged everything in chronological order to make it easy to tell the story in the book or in the comic book begins with Parker storming across the bridge 
following the events that I described where the job went bad and he was betrayed and following his stint in prison. We don't actually see his face for the first couple of pages, do we? It's all just shots of his body. The, the, The panels are carefully constructed to see his body, his hands, his feet, that people are scared of him. That he walks past the car... Uh, and a woman looks at him and then looks terrified, yeah. having seen him. There's another shot in a panel further down the page of another woman looking at him fearfully. So he's a man who looks like he means business. Everything we know of him in these first couple of pages is from the other people's reactions, which we see quite a lot over the first five, six, seven pages that have no dialogue on them. Well, the office women do know how he'd fallen a woman like a tree in the night. That was in the book, is it? Yes. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Everything we know about him is he moves angrily, but it's a very controlled anger, isn't it? Mm. Um, and Cook is really in his element here, art-wise. As we saw in New Frontier, he has a very 50s, 60s approach to how he draws characters, cars, and even the city himself, and that's essentially what this story is. Yes, it's the 50s, 60s. Yeah. What's set in 1964? Yeah, yeah. It's like it it was written for Darwin Cook to draw. Yeah, his women always look those 60s hourglass figures anywhere with a lot of John Romita Sr. in them. (laughs) There's an awful lot of John Sr. in his women, isn't Mm. there? The waitress on page 45, obviously I'm going from the page numbers in the absolute, so I do apologise if you've not got the absolute, but that's, that's Mary Jane. It's Mary Jane smoking a fag. Yeah. Because we said that about New Frontier, didn't we? That his women are very John Senior. Yeah. And, you know, there's no wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Anyone who can draw women as good as John Senior is worth mimicking. <laughs> um, Parker crosses the George Washington Bridge from New Jersey to Manhattan. And in his anger, he decides to walk right through the middle of traffic rather than just the sidewalk. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's not really bothered either, is he? No. Uh, and also Parker jumping over the barrier in the underground is pretty funny and the movement of the train is, show, is shown quite well in the background yeah he, he gets the as the train pulls in he jumps over the barrier and gets on the train and I like that the guard doesn't even notice until after the fact he yeah. just looks up from his paper and goes somebody just come in can't get away with that anymore no can ya not people stood everywhere now when you try and get a train uh, there are a few signs of the times in the story as you would expect, given that it's a period piece. Parker panhandles a quarter for a cup of coffee and bums a cigarette off a waitress, which he smokes indoors. Again, try and get away with that nowadays. He also rips the filtered end off the cigarette, implying he's majorly addicted to the nicotine. He fakes a driver's licence by simply picking up the cards from the Department of Motor Vehicles, completing them, uses a fake name and then roughs them up to make them look well used. I liked how he roughed them up. He goes in the toilet crumples it up, drops it on the floor, stamps on it a few times, straightens it back up and then puts it back in his wallet yeah. so it looks like it's old. It now looks like my driver's licence. <laughs> he only needs some sellotape holding it together you and it look like mine. His full name is Jim Steranko Parker. Why? Well, because of how doing he's the, doing his the licence license yeah. thing. Twitter. Uh, he then takes it to a number of banks before he hits upon the one that has the fake name he chose, Edward Johnson, and they gave him a checkbook simply because he has a driver's licence in that name. Again, try getting away with that today. Mm-hmm. It was a simpler time in the 60s. I'd have been a bank robber in the 60s, I think. 
Yeah. And I, th- I think I'd have certainly given it a go. <laughs> uh, Edward Johnson, speaking of which, was a great name. It's not quite John Smith. Yeah. Overly common, but it's common enough that he hits on it after a couple of tries. He goes in about three or four banks, doesn't he, before he hits on it. We get our first look at him in page 52, uh, in a splash page with Parker looking in a mirror. The bathroom is wonderful. It's grimy and filthy. It's the worst scummy club bathroom yeah. you have ever been in. And ask your mum, we've been in some scummy club bathrooms. You know, he's got a bit of a Peter Parker he look does, going on there. Ironically. Yeah. He does look a bit like Peter Parker there, doesn't he? As we'll find out later, he's escaped from a chain gang. So we have no idea where he got the suit that he's wearing. Or the wallet that he's carrying. Although there is a stain on the shirt which Parker covers up by buttoning up his suit jacket. If it's blood, then it gives us a good idea where the suit came from. Yeah. Is that mentioned in the book? Uh, no, only that. No, he just has a messy suit covered in a bit of dirt. Right. He, he uses a tie, but that's scrumpled up, so he pins it to his shirt. Right, so in this he doesn't pin the tie to his shirt, does he? He pulls the tie out of his pocket yeah. and just tucks it in and then fastens his suit jacket. So, so we have no idea where he got the suit from. No. Maybe he stole it off a clothesline like David Banner. Maybe. Except David Banner would have left some money. Uh, Again, Cook carries the story using just the visuals as well as giving us a glimpse into Parker's character. Parker takes the checking account and completely overhauls his appearance with a tailored suit and a number of expensive watches. He then takes these watches to various different pawn shops in exchange for cash. He eats a T-bone steak, but doesn't leave a tip, and drinks an entire bottle of vodka before hurling the bottle out of the window. Remember, readers not familiar with the novel still don't know who this guy is and what his deal is, but Cook is slowly filling in the readers on various aspects of his character. I love the waiter's face when he doesn't leave a tip. Mm. I thought that was quite humorous. The character reveals that still the same as in the book. Is it? All of this entire first part of the book is the first chapter of the novel. Right. Uh, but in that, um, instead of the watches, it's suitcases. Suitcases? Yeah, he pawns luggage cases. Right, okay, fair enough. And gets money that way. And he purposefully undertips the waiter, but overtips the guy in the hotel. Why? I don't know. What's his reason for that? I don't know, he just says he does. So the guy in the hotel will keep quiet about him, you think? Somebody comes asking. I don't know. If he's a good tipper that may incline the bellboy to not say anything. Unless people tip bigger, I suppose. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, none of that's in here. Mm. Uh, Parker does find Lynn. Uh, In one of the few weak moments in the story, we're not told how he located her, we're just told he knew she was in New York. New York's pretty big. It doesn't say in the book either. The chapter starts with him kicking the door down. Right. It's possible she's registered in this apartment in her own name, Lynn Parker, because... As we'll find out later, Parker is believed to be dead. Yeah. So she probably didn't think she had any reason to register under a false name. That's my thinking. He knows she's in New York. He knows Mal's keeping her. Yeah. So it's just a case then of checking apartment listings and stuff, either under the name Mal Resnick or Lynn Parker. But Mal can't be registered anywhere under his name because he has trouble. He's looking for Mal. Yeah. But that was the only thing I could think of. She's here under her own name. And that's how he tracked her down. But 
That's a bit woolly, isn't it? Mm. We're not, we don't go through that. Uh, one of the most disturbing scenes in the book, which is replete with disturbing scenes. It's even worse in the book. Is it? Yeah. Well, let me tell the, the oh, lovely yeah, listener yeah. what he does, and then you tell us about the book. Uh, Parker's awful to Lynn, for reasons we discover later, but which throw his actions into some relief, actively encouraging her to commit suicide. For her part, Lynn seems to regret what she did, or regrets being caught... Parker also feels to, seems to feel sorry a slight pang of remorse for how it all worked out with Lynn. He's certainly still attracted to her, but when she does commit suicide via overdose, he just calls her dumb. However, ever the pragmatist, he realises he needs to get rid of the body in such a way that it won't be reported or be on the front page of the paper. So, it's because Mal will find out that she's dead. And then the guy who drops off Lynn's money won't bother coming. And that's Parker's only lead to where Mal is. To this end, he waits, spirits Lynn away under cover of darkness, and then cuts her face with a switchblade so she's unrecognisable, so they can't put her face in the paper. Mm-hmm. Go on, what does he do in the book? Well, in the book, he's, he is more controlled, but he's, he's more his attraction to his show more in the book. Because her robe falls off her a lot more in the book. Does it really? It's like when she's bent over on the floor, he checks her ass out and he's like, Oh, bugger, I really hate her. Keep the axe up. <laughs> um, he, 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 he does call her a few names. It doesn't say what he calls her, but we can right. work it out. Um, the, and there's a bit where he does throw a coffee cup at her, but purposely misses her. Yeah. Uh, when Mal's brought up. Right. And then he, he goes to sleep, and then the next chapter, she's already dead, so there's no bit where he's on the couch. Right. Feeling a little bit frustrated. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. And also, the Lynn's death in this is actually one of the best and most subtle scenes in the book, where Parker's on the couch and knows she's dead before he sees her, because her ghost comes to him. Is that what you thought that was? Well, it's, yeah, because it's what Cook says it was. Right, okay, fair enough. See, I just got that that was his imagination. Well, he said, it can work one way, but he said it's like, it's it's like him being haunted by Lynn's memory that also tells him she's dead. Right, because he's lying on the settee, frustrated, and then she appears to him naked and in silhouette, and in your first instance as a reader going through this, the first time through you thought she was coming to him in the night. Yeah. Didn't you? And it was only the second and third read-through, you, re- you know that's not the case. I just thought his mind was playing tricks on her, on him. But that works as well, that he's a ghost. Yeah, I suppose, uh, I don't know how I feel about that, because it's introducing a tinge of supernatural yeah. into otherwise a very gritty, down-to-earth crime thriller. But on the other hand, he's tired... Yeah. In the novel, he's drunk. Right. And he, he's just, like, seeing his wife, who he absolutely hates, and yet still... But doesn't hate her, does he? That's yeah. the point of the story. Ultimately, the point of this is he has let a girl get under his skin. Mm. And that's why the betrayal has hurt him so much. Yeah. Because there was this one girl... I mean, I don't see what's particularly special about Lynn that Parker let her get to him. But let's be honest, she's not really in it that much, is she? <laughs> so it's just... Yeah, all right, fair enough, I'll go with that. But yeah, she's dead on the bed. Hmm. Anyway. 
the, the passage of time shown through the TV is a little neat little technique. Yeah, and again, he does that that thing that he did in in New Frontier, where it's exactly the same panel from exactly the same camera angle, for want of a better word, but the lighting gives away that it's nighttime. Mm. Doesn't it? And it's the TV. Yeah. Up next, we have the afternoon movie, and that concludes our broadcasting day. So you just—he's just sat there watching telly all day. Yeah. I don't know if he ordered any room service or anything. Well, there's a similar thing in the book where he wa- he watches TV. This, this is like a good part of a chapter where he watches TV all day until night, so he can take Lynn out. And then when he gets back, he's still got three days to wait around until the the, the yeah the carrier comes around. So. That he spends three days watching TV. Does he eat anything? Well, um, no, he doesn't. Actually, they, they do specify that when he goes to see Stegman, he feels like crap because he's not eaten and he's not slept and he's not drunk anything properly for three days. Yeah, because he's just because if he leaves the room and the guy shows up, mm. he's kind of buggered. I mean, she may have had something in the apartment. Yeah, but well, he, he, it says um, after the three days, after he's finished with um, the money, he makes himself a sandwich, has milk, three cups of coffee, and then goes. But that doesn't help him. Right. So that's yeah, it. see, because that's not any. No, I quite like that. Um, and also, um, on page seventy-six, Cook's hands, uh, Cook draws Parker's hands like differently to everyone else, and even his own body, where it's all rough and jagged lines. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Cause it's similar to uh, Stark's description of him. The look like they're made from brown clay by a sculptor who thought big. Yeah, he did. He's made a, a point. He emphasises the size of Parker's hands in the first chapter. Yeah, we well, still in the first chapter. You know what I mean? When he's walking through the cars, there's quite a few close-ups of his hands and how big and rough his hands are. Well, there's also the thing with the guy who carries the money. He kills him in this, but in the book, he ties him up and leaves him at Lynn's. What, so he'll get blamed for Lynn's death? Uh, well, actually, no, we we don't know he kills him in this. Well, he tortures him for a name, yeah. and then the next thing we see, Parker's left. He, he doesn't even do that in the book, he just beats him up and ties him up and leaves him. Right, so maybe he left him there so he'd get blamed for Lynn's disappearance. Yeah. But then the question becomes, who tied him up in the room? Mm. So, you know, maybe the police just didn't care. Yeah. Maybe they've got somebody he'll do. We'll, we'll bang him up for it. We then get the extended flashback, which takes oh a dozen or so pages detailing the caper and how it went lot wrong. How Cook deals with what could have been an info dump of exposition is masterful. It's proper graphical storytelling, with the text running parallel to the image, which take the form of maps in certain places, and action sequences in others, all the while telling the story magnificent magnificently. Whilst not going into overt detail, we see the job, the men, and the betrayal. In fairness, Parker is about to kill Mal before he blabbed. Mal just gets there first. Again, however, we still don't get the full story, not learning why Lynn betrays Parker until we see these events from Mal's point of view later on in the story. Cook builds the character moments into the narrative seamlessly. Parker sees Lynn draw the revolver and quickly narrows down the suspects in the betrayal to the only two people he gave a revolver to, showing his mind working all the time. Even when he's caught in a fire and filled with lead, he manages to walk away, but he's caught by the police for the first time in his career. It's telling that initially he's far more upset about that than anything else. 
But once he finds out where Mal is, his impatience gets the better of him, and on a chain gang, he murders a guard and makes a break for it. And that's extended even more in the novel. Is it? After he escapes, because um, he's messed up pretty badly, he manages to escape from the house and into a fire, collapses, and is asleep for three days, just in the forest. So he, he after those three days, he wakes up, he's pretty fine, he's healed up more, and then he gets arrested. And then what happens is, he gets sentenced to 60 days in prison. Right. But he fights a guard, and so he gets sentenced to eight months. And then after the six months, he busts out. Right. So they, they truncate that into one page. Mm. But the fact that he's wanted by the police now would be another reason for him getting the plastic surgery, wouldn't it? Yeah. So he's not just wanted by the syndicate, he's wanted by the police, which he's never been before. Mm. So that, that's another good explanation for having his face done. Is the heist different in the book? Um, no, it's more or less the same. Is it the same? Only they have to uh, torture a lawyer. Um, to, to it's only a lawyer. Yeah, they have to torture <laughs> a lawyer to get information on the planes and the islands and the deal. No offence to any lawyers that may be yeah. listening. <laughs> but Shakespeare, you know, first thing we do, kill all the lawyers. Uh, part two, book two, whatever you want to call it, is interesting because it's a complete narrative shift. The entire book eschews Parker's point of view and we instead shift over to Mal Resnick. Resnick is told that somebody is looking for him and immediately his mind goes to Parker, especially when he's told that Linny's dead. There's some masterful character work here. Mal starts sweating when he's told and he doesn't really stop. He's panicked and starts to fret, beating on the call girl he has in his apartment, and then starts mouthing off to Stegman that he's untouchable and has friends in high places, more for his own peace of mind than actually believing it. This is proven when his friends, Carter in this case, tells Mal to deal with it himself. To be fair, Mal manages to keep his cool here, arranges to stay at a new place and calls in another hooker, but put the word out, he wants Parker to find him, which makes sense, because this way, if he knows Mal's coming, he can be ready for it, instead of just waiting around. The art is a little bit more cartoony in this section than anywhere else. Yeah. It's still great, don't get me wrong, and some of the dialogue's brilliant. How much of this dialogue is lifted straight from the book? Yeah, I've not read it to this, but where I'm up to in the book, he's just... Well, I'm like halfway through a chapter, so he's just... The pearl's just arrived. Right, okay. So how much in the... Well, so there isn't a lot of talking in the early chapters, is there? No. To be able to say whether the dialogue is lifted straight from the book. All right, fair enough. Mal's extended flashback shows us the offence of Parker's portrayal from his point of view. We see that he convinces Ryan that Parker is selling them out by slitting Chester's throat and saying that Parker did it. They stumble upon Lynn naked in the bathroom and instruct her to kill Parker or die herself. And all the time that she and Parker are engaged in their bedroom acrobatics, Mal is watching with a gun on Lynn, which is why she pulls the trigger. does beg the question why he didn't just shoot Parker while that was going on himself. Yeah. But be interesting to see how that plays out in the book if it plays out in the same way but uh, you'll have to let me know when you get there we'll add it we'll we'll do a Lucas <laughs> we'll cut it back into the episode because I had hoped to read some of the book for this as well I just haven't had the time book 2 ends with Parker bursting through the window and Mal naked leaping for his gun mm. yes 
I felt a bit sorry for the prostitute. Who, it's who an seems excellent. to bang her head in that pit. She does seem to get her head banged, but she's just been banged anyway. <laughs> so very good. But I mean, there's there's not a lot to say about book two. Yeah. It's not that it's not great, and it fills in an awful lot of the extra bits of backstory, seeing it from Mal's point of view, and we learn an awful lot about the deal and why Lynn betrayed him. But it's a lot of talky talk talk. And Parker's a lot more interesting than Mal. And Parker is more interesting than Mal. And we are just waiting for Parker to find Mal. Yeah. That's basically, we're going through that entire chapter, just mm. waiting for that event to happen. So essentially, the reader is put in the same position as Mal. Yeah. Which is quite good, in that the suspense is building up because you know he's coming, mm. basically. The, the character change is handled quite nicely in the, the book as well. Is it? Like, part one um, ends with the flashback, and then it, it's saying... And now Mal was just sat there, smiling, waiting for Parker's hands around his neck. And then, but part two opens with Mal was sat there, smiling, waiting for Parker's hands around his neck. All right, very clever. I'll have to read the book. Uh, Book three starts with Parker tracking down Mal and shows off Parker's ruthlessness and lack of empathy, particularly towards women. Knowing Mal likes high-class call girls, he manages to track Mal to his original hotel using an old contact within the industry. He has no compunction about using her and makes it clear the past relationship notwithstanding. It's in her interest to not let Mal know Parker's coming. He watches the hotel from a beauty parlour across the street, accidentally killing the woman inside. Which was the moment for me in the story where he went from being anti-heroic to just not being in any way heroic. Mm. There's an inkling as well that Parker does feel a small measure of remorse for this. Because it was an accident. Because it was an accident. He he breaks into the beauty parlour and ties her up. He's got no intention of killing her. Mm. She dies because she's an asthmatic. And tying the, the, the gag across her mouth has apparently caused her to die. And he actually says he went over and looked closely. It was stupid. There wasn't any reason for a mouth gag to make her dead. So he he kind of feels a small sliver mm. of guilt about this one. Not a lot. But just enough. Do you know, he, he does feel a little bit guilty about it. Having done this, he uses her death as a distraction to get in the hotel by calling the police and watching from across the road... Which I thought was, again, Parker using the situation to his advantage, even though he didn't actually want it to happen. Having done that, he gets into the hotel using the police as a distraction. He finds the other call girl that Mal has used. And under duress, he makes a call to ask where he is now. She knows that this is going to lead to her being killed. Because they will remember that she made this phone call. And so she's just forced to leave town. And Parker shows no remorse whatsoever for this. At all. His use of women is reprehensible. Leavened only by the fact he treats men exactly the same. Yeah. So it's not like he's, he's um, misogynistic. Yeah. He doesn't like men either. And he's, he just, he just uses, doesn't like people. No, he uses anyone to get what he wants. Mm. So, I mean, that doesn't make it any better. But at least he's consistent. Uh, Parker finds Mal and only in the heat of the moment realises killing him outright doesn't get him his life back. Up till now, Parker has been after Mal for that reason. There's been no acknowledgement that Parker wants the money back. He just wants revenge. But here, 
with Mal on his knees, Parker realised that he wants the money. He needs the money to set up his comfortable lifestyle. And killing Mal outright doesn't get him that. Once Parker has the information he needs, that leads him to Carter. He strangles Mal over a series of multiple panels, showing that it isn't easy and it isn't quick. But after strangling him over a nine-panel grid, Parker spits on his corpse. Yeah. Well, the page... 136, which is the strangling page, mm. and the following page, I think, are absolutely great and yet both completely different in style. Yeah, well, and I also love as well. That's a nine-panel grid. That's a dick called nine-panel Spider-Man grid. Yeah, followed by a splash shot of New York. Is that again a, a photo manipulation? Looks it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Fair enough. It's very good. Book four finally brings all the elements of the story to a head. Parker is at home in the seedy underworld of pimps and hookers, although he seems far more comfortable with high-class call girls and in the classy environs of the Frederick Carter Investment Centre, which is where he finds himself finally located. He's a classy thug, well-dressed, expensive haircut, and is comfortable being frisked as he's escorted into Carter's office. However, he takes a very brief moment where the bodyguard turns to kick the crap out of him and take the bodyguard's gun. As with when Lynn pulled the revolver on him, we see his mind quickly ticking off the potential suspect. Here we see Parker always thinking and taking every opportunity to stack the deck in his favour. It also taps into how people get cocky and relaxed, which Parker never does. I did like the line, Carter says to Parker, that man is one of the best. And Parker says, no he isn't. <laughs> Just matter of fact, no he's not. Yeah. I took him out, he's not that good. I thought the best. <laughs> oh, that was quite clever. Um, Carter is incredibly cool in this scene, as he was in the earlier one. He mentions that he found he finds Mal's story spurious until Parker mentions that Lynn shot him, not Mal. Carter buys that story a lot more. <laughs> yeah. That Mal didn't have the guts or the nerve to kill Parker, but he'll accept that a woman did it. Yeah. That's fair enough. What he doesn't buy is Parker going through all of this for $45,000. Whilst he's fully behind Parker's quest for vengeance, he does not understand going up against the syndicate for such a paltry sum. But for Parker, it's the principle of the thing. $45,000, get him a couple of nice hotels for the night, but then he's going to have to pull a job pretty quickly, isn't he? Mm. He still gets his money off Colonel Sanders, though. <laughs> he does look like Colonel Sanders. Yeah. Mr. Carter. Carter makes the call Parker wants him to make, and there's a wonderful dead pan moment of comedy. Parker, by and large, is very humorless, for the most part. But when Carter's on the phone, he says he doesn't know how many Parker has killed thus far. Parker almost nonchalantly says nine, barely interrupting Carter's phone call. Which I thought was was quite hysterical. Mm. It was a very funny moment in a story that had very few funny moments. It's the Independent from the Resnick matter. No, no, he insisted I call her. He'd kill me. He's already killed Resnick, his wife, and God knows how many more. Nine. <laughs> he just carries on with his conversation. Yeah. I thought that was funny. I don't know why. Uh, I love the panel at the end of this, this sequence where Parker holds the phone that Carter was using to talk to Bronson so Bronson can hear the gun go off as he blasts Carter point blank through the head. The panel is composed so we are behind the executive chair Carter is sat in. Parker is partially in shadow on the opposite side of the desk and we see the blast through the back of the chair. What sells it is Carter's body language, which, although we only see his arm showing panicked and distressed, because he honestly didn't think this was going to happen. Mm. 
He didn't think Parker would kill him. Or he certainly didn't think Fairfax wouldn't, uh, Brosnan wouldn't give him the money. Well, it's less of a gunshot through the back of the chair and more of the chair exploding. Yes, so there's not really going to be a lot of his lead left, is there? No. And I like, I like what, what he says here. All right, Carter's dead. I've got your name and phone number. In five minutes, I'll have your address. In 24 hours, I'll have you in my hands. Yes or no? And the guy basically tells him to do something anatomically incorrect. (laughs) And uh, Parker just says, I'll be seeing you. I'll be seeing you. Yeah, (laughs) Patrick McGowan. (laughs) I'll be seeing you. (laughs) It's uh, very, very good. Parker cleverly doesn't go to Bronson at this point which is what they're expecting. He rather goes to Fairfax, which was the other name he learned from Mal. Parker's plan, which is just to have a number of people that he knows from, you know, the wrong side of the law, hit a number of syndicate operations is inspired. He does say that there's a lot of times they've wanted to hit syndicate payoffs and such because they're easy targets, but they just don't want the hassle. So if he gives the word they will go through and start hitting syndicate payoffs and drop-offs and dead drops and stuff like that. And they say not because they like Parker, yeah. but because they don't like the syndicate. Yeah, and it's, it'd be easy money. And if enough people are doing it, they're not organised, mm. so it just becomes irritating and starts costing them money and starts becoming a major irritation and attracting attention they may not want. Which Fairfax is... agrees and Bronson agrees to pay. Mm. Which is what happens later on. Yeah, pretty much. One of the issues I did have with the story was exactly why Parker, who has been very careful with his life and his job so far, would go to all this trouble to take on the syndicate for a relatively small amount of money. Surely it would have been easier to just put the word out after Mal was dead that Parker was back in business and find a job. There is an explanation given on page 153. Parker is essentially running on momentum now and has already devoted time and money to this and it's just a case of finishing what he started. There's even an element of him not curing at this point if he lives or dies. Mal essentially took everything from him. A woman he genuinely cared for, an easy lifestyle, no record of him held with the authorities and Mal took all of that to make good with the syndicate. So indirectly, the syndicate O. Parker. I do wish to refer specifically to the art here. The text, again, in this explanation piece, runs all the way down the left-hand side. And the shot of Parker walking through the night is absolutely stunning. Parker is wearing a long coat and a fedora, his face entirely in shadow, and the panels at a Dutch angle. The night sky is dark and cloudy with dawn breaking through and litter floats around on the breeze. It's not the best piece of art in the work, but it's still stunning. I like that a lot. Mm. I don't know, I just lingered over that panel for ages because I just thought it was great. Because I read this three or four times, which is more than I normally read anything for a show because this is just fantastic. Parker after just talking about how he never really likes killing, then blows Stegman away simply because he's a loose end. Was it not because I read it as um, Stegman told Parker that he wouldn't tell Mal Parker back, but and then did, did anyway. Yeah. yeah, but he's also a loose end. Yeah. So both work, both interpretations work, and both are valid. Yeah. You're probably right, that probably is his motivation for getting rid of him, but He's a loose end. He is a loose end, yeah. So he's got two reasons to get rid of him. Uh, The next sequence of pages are absolutely stunning. Almost entirely without dialogue. 
Cook shows how Parker scopes out the meeting place, an old subway stop, taking out Bronson's men slowly and methodically as he realises that this first drop is a hit. Interestingly, playing into what he says earlier on, he doesn't kill anyone. When the money finally arrives, after this first drop, which Parker knows is, is bad... Again, Cook tells the story almost exclusively through the art, with Parker receiving the money and then leaving the subway carefully, knowing that somewhere Bronson will have men waiting for him. Again, Parker takes them all out, again, without killing them, and then just takes the car. I thought it was good. Mm. Very, very interesting. This was my favourite bit of the entire book, just the subway bit. Why? I don't know. Um, The rest of it was good, it's just this, I really like this being how it's the deal how he makes everything then is the getaway how it's, methodical Parker it's is it's very clean and cool and yeah it is um, it's uh, yeah my favourite part's the heist that goes wrong because that's very noir betrayed yeah. by a woman left for dead comes back for vengeance mm. uh, that's my favourite part of it and Cook handles that brilliantly yeah. the, the mixture of words and pictures in that sequence is proper graphical storytelling because there's no dialogue, there's no dialogue balloons, there's no meanwhile, he's telling the story in text and pictures. It's what nothing else, not any other medium, sorry, can do, as well as this can do it. It's absolutely wonderful. And that last page is... The car just driving off into the sunset. Yeah. Maybe a good answer, the keys. I'd have that as a poster. It is pretty good, and it's nothing but a big black floor and the clouds. But the right, the art, and the colouring, and just the shading. It's a little Impala driving away. Yeah, is it an Impala? It looks like, yeah. It's um, it's really good. It's absolutely fantastic. Absolutely blinding mm. comic book. We've waxed lyrical about Darwin Cook's art before, and it's just as wonderful here. Nobody evokes the period better than Cook, and the 60s setting feels real and wonderful, looking exactly like the early Connery Bond movies. Cook also does an excellent job with the characters, which, whilst all looking different, all look chiselled out of the very fabric of the 1960s. The men are all men, all pulsating masculinity and square-jawed, except the weasels are informers who all have ratty-like faces. The fashions are all rat-pack cool, and the locations visually stunning and accurate to the period. The women, likewise, look like they've all stepped off the set of Doctor No, all rounded hips, firm thighs, wonderful eyelashes, and probably not to be trusted. They all look gorgeous, though. Again, as we've mentioned before, Cook seems heavily influenced by John Romita Sr.'s work, especially his 60s heyday, and this is readily apparent in his draftsmanship, but Cook is definitely his own man. Story-wise, this was just as stunning. I've never read the Parker novels, although you've been catching up on them since we started, haven't you? Yeah. Uh, picking up large... I got this largely on Cook's name and was simply blown away. Parker is not a nice man. He's not an anti-hero or heroic in any form. Stark described him as having a face of chipped concrete with eyes of flawed onyx. His mouth was a quick stroke, bloodless. And Cook captures this well. Even though some long-time fans complained Cook made him a little too handsome. Whatever he looks like, and he looks different in the next story anyway, he's a cold man, ruthless in his goals, single-minded in his pursuit of them, and really quite unlikable. Which begs the question, why do we root for him? He does some questionable things in this story, some of which are reprehensible, and yet 
There's the appeal of the rebel who lives life on his own terms, the man who follows his own path, screwing the traditional way of life and not constrained by societal norms, a man who just puts two fingers up at the nuclear family, getting a job, slaving for eight hours a day for someone else, and who just enjoys what he does and enjoys doing what he wants. While Parker may do things the reader finds uncomfortable and even ugly, in this story alone he kills a guard out of impatience and accidentally kills an innocent woman, an act for which he does show a little bit of remorse. He represents a way of life secretly we wish we could all live. Besides, there's nothing to dislike about crime noir, dames to die for and men to kill, and this series of graphic novels is highly recommended. What did you think of it, Michael? Well, to do with him being a bad guy and yet I was rooting for it, the thing with it is, his first introductory story was he was done wrong by. Yes. So So, it's more of a revenge tale. Yeah, that and he's a scumbag, but he's fighting a group of scumbags. Yeah, well, see, that's the key, isn't it? Ultimately, if you're going to write a story about a scumbag, you have to put him up against people who are worse than he is. That's why the Punisher works. Hmm. The Punisher is a killer. Pure and simple. He's a cold-blooded murderer. But then, when they go down that road, they pull the whole family trick out. Yeah, but he is killing people who are worse than him. Yeah. Who do things worse than he does. He only kills people that are worse than he is. And therefore, you get behind him. So... It's the same here. You go through this reading it, mm. and Parker's doing stuff, and you're thinking, I can't believe he just did that. I can't believe he just did that. But then you're like... And then you're like, but he's the hero of the book. But then they'll have another flashback where he gets shot by his wife. So. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if he does soften him up a bit as the books go on. Because yeah. it's my understanding. I mean, the second book in here, the outfit... Parker isn't as rough around the edges as in this first one. He's also barely in it. He's in it a lot, but it's not a Parker story, really. It's mostly a criminal story. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, but it's still good. Mm. Still highly recommended. Do you have anything else to say? No. I thought it was good. Great. It's better than great. It's great, great. Great, great. (laughs) Uh, The Martini edition, as we mentioned at the top of the show, is simply an absolute... I don't know if... They have a copyright on this, but that's what it is, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's a little bit bigger than Absolute. No, it's is it? I'm sure somebody said stood on a shelf next to an Absolute, it's slightly taller. It could be. But... The paper's different, and... The paper's gorgeous. Mm. It's that matte paper rather than that glossy stuff that you can't read Mm. if the light hits it in the proper way. It's absolutely brilliant paper. Um... Immediately after The Hunter is a short story, The Man with the Getaway Face, adapted from the second Parker novel of the same name, originally published in 1963. In it, Parker pays a significant amount of money for facial reconstruction, enabling Cook to re-envision Parker as a more rough and ready figure, not as handsome as he was in The Hunter, one of the few things the adaptation drew critical flack for. This leads straight into an adaptation of the third Parker novel, The Outfit, and then a short adaptation of the final chapter of the seventh Parker book, the aptly titled The Seventh. The Seventh is a new story created for this edition, something I'm not sure I agree with, given the expense, and if you bought the original editions, I'm sure you felt mighty cheated. Nevertheless, Cook's adaptation of The Score, the fifth Parker novel, is already out, whilst Cook's fourth adaptation, Slayground, based upon the 14th novel in the series, is scheduled for a December 2013 
release. My personal favourite story in this is the adaptation of that one chapter later on. The seventh? No, 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 no. It's just one extract and one picture near the back of the book, and that's my favourite bit in this edition. Oh, right. There's a, the following passage from the Parker novel Butcher's Moon. Considered a classic moment in crime fiction, and Donald Westlake often cited it as his personal favourite. So it's one page extract yeah. from that novel, and then a one page poster shot, full page splash of Parker again by the side of the car, which looks pretty cool. That's fair enough. Mm-hmm. Shall we read it? You can if you like. Parker looked at the finger. The first knuckle was bent slightly, so the finger seemed to be calm, at ease, resting. But at the other end were small clots of dark blood and lighter smears of blood on the cotton gowns. Chevelli said, Your friend is alive. This is the proof. Chevelli seemed uncomfortable now, but to be pushing himself through the scene out of some inner conviction or determination, almost as though he had a personal grudge against Parker. The deal is, he said, that you come to Bernadella's. That's where Green is. They've got him in bed there and they call the doctor. You come there by noon tomorrow and you can have your money and you can take Green away with you. Buonadella will supply the ambulance to take him wherever you want out of town, even two or three hundred miles from here. Parker glanced at the finger. That's no proof of anything, he said. If you don't get to Buonadella's by noon tomorrow, Chevelli said, they'll send you another finger, and another finger every day after that, and then toes, to prove he's still alive and not a decomposing body. And if I go there by tomorrow, I get him, and the money both, and an ambulance to take him away. That's right. Parker said, Do you believe that, Chevelli? He's alive, Chevelli said. I saw him. Doesn't look good, but he's alive. The deal is Buonadella's way of doing things, Parker said. But Buonadella isn't in charge anymore. He jested with the pistol at the finger in the white box. Salazian's running things now. It was a stupid thing to kill Albazini, Chevelli said. Parker frowned at him, looking at the coldly angry face. Oh, they told you I did that, huh? Chevelli had nothing to say. Parker, studying him, saw there was no point arguing with him and no longer possible to either trust him or make use of him. He gestured with the pistol towards Chevelli, saying, Get out of the car. What? Just get out. Leave the door open. Back away to the sidewalk. Keep facing me. Chevelli frowned. What for? I take precautions. Do it. Puzzled, Chevelli opened the door and climbed out onto the thin grass next to the curb. He took a step to the sidewalk and turned around to face the car again. Parker leaned far to the right, aiming the pistol out at arm's length in front of him, the line of the barrel sighted on Chevelli's head. Chevelli read his intention and suddenly thrust his hands out protectively in front of himself, shouting, I'm only the messenger! Now you're the message, Parker told him, and shot him. It was good, that. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should read the books. No. <laughs> Very good. I like that. Um, as a whole, I think both Michael and I are strong proponents of the comics field and that it should be genuinely considered as a legitimate art form. But rarely does a book so encompass that lofty goal. Rarely does a comic book stand up and be so much taller than the books around it. Rarely does a genuine work of art appear in the comics field that it can be held up against the best of literature and celluloid and celebrated loudly and forcefully this is that book 
towering achievement that should be on everybody's best graphic novels ever lists. It should be as celebrated as Watchmen, Mouse and Dark Knight Returns. It should be thrust into the hands of everybody, comics reader and civilian alike, as what great comics can be. It should be held up as a masterful example of what comics can do when it so wonderfully blends words and pictures together to create something unique. It should be that Darwin Cook is as celebrated a comics auteur as Miller, Moore and others of that ilk. That he isn't is criminal. That this book still flies under the radar of even hardened comics fans is unfathomable. But you know what? There's a part of me that thinks Parker likes it that way. Oh, Stark does anyway. Oh, Stark does, yeah. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, Conan the Barbarian. I thought it was going to be, we enjoy that so much, we're going to do Criminal. Yeah, no. <laughs> we're going to do the other ones. No, no, no. Next week, um, Conan. Something yeah. else we know nothing about. I don't, anyway. Uh, I do now, because I've been reading through that big fat book. So now we'll, <laughs> we'll know not to tease what we're doing next week. Yeah, not, not to tease what we're doing next week, because we've already told them what yes. we're doing next week. Uh, Alright, we hope you're enjoying this this look at stuff that we don't know much about. Uh, it is an experiment to try and do different stuff, stuff that shakes up the show a bit. I like to think that once you get into doing something and you've got an established listenership, which thankfully we have now, you can start experimenting. You can start experimenting, yeah. It's one of my things when you have a successful television show and they don't know why it's successful, so they just keep doing the same thing over and over. Yeah. My thinking is if you've got something and people seem to like it, let's start pushing the envelope a little bit. Mm. So we're going to try and do some stuff that may be a little off the wall, maybe a little bit out of our comfort zone. Mm. But you know we'll always come back home to Capes and Spider-Man. To particularly. two comics. A show. Yeah, it's two comics a show. One pit by you, one pit by me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so next week, Conan, we hope you enjoy that. We hope you enjoyed this. I urge you to go out and check out Parker. I know the Martini edition is, is expensive, but the other graphic novels are relatively cheap. And it deserves the term graphic novel. This wasn't a series of comics thrown together in a tread paperback. No. This was a proper graphic novel. Proper little A5 book. Proper little A5 graphic novel. Because I hate it when you say, I don't read comics, I read graphic novels. They're comics, you <laughs> ass. So next week, bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. I said that in the wrong order, but I'll fix it in the edits. <laughs> See you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. 
New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. And Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Recording, so. Do you want to join us, Mel? Do you want to join us? Have you have you have you done your notes for this? Have week you read Parker this week? Peter Parker. No, just Parker. He looks a little bit like him. No, for, it looks like Richard Parker. Let's be honest with you. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> one of the issues. What? One <laughs> of the. What? <laughs> One of these. Comedy gold. <laughs>